Andros here. When I'm not co-hosting the World is Wrong podcast, I'm hosting and producing the Radio 8-Ball podcast, where we answer questions by picking songs at random, like picking musical tarot cards. We've hosted musical divinations for people like John C. Riley, Patricia Arquette, Tig Notaro, and Fred Armisen, and hosted over 200 songwriters providing the randomly chosen answers from Inara George and Dan Byrne to Mose Allison and Alan Toussaint. That's Radio 8 Ball, all one word. You can find us wherever you get your podcasts and download our app from the iTunes App Store. I'm Larry Bishop, and you're listening to the World is Wrong podcast. We're here to tell you how the world is wrong. The world is wrong about you. Want to say it with English accents? The horse's mouth! <laughs> yes, indeed. Welcome to The World is Wrong, an extremely positive podcast where we celebrate films the world is wrong about. And I'm one of your hosts, and my name is Andras Jones. And I'm the other host, and my name is Brian Connolly. And we're here to talk about a film from 1958 called The Horse's Mouth. Uh, Ooh. Now, this is one of my favorite films, and this is your first time seeing it. Yeah, yeah. And uh, I'm going to play a clip from it in a second, but do you want to give a quick, you know, from the hip, did you like it or did you not like it? I did like it. I think I I, I would have liked it more if it went in the direction that it, in my head it was supposed to go, and we can talk about that later. But I did really like it, and I really love these sort of, like, British... Uh, comedies of the of the fifties, like it definitely has like it was that pleasantness that I needed after an unpleasant twenty twenty. <laughs> so I feel like it it was it lifted me up off the couch into a better life. So that's good. That's high praise. Wonderful. Okay. Well, let's play a clip and then we'll talk about it. You're missing a big slice of life, Cookie. Half a minute of revelations worth a million years of no nothing. Who've lived a million years? A million people every 12 months. I'll show you how to look at a picture. Don't look at it. Feel it with your eyes. First feel the shapes in the flat, like patterns. Then feel it in the round. Feel all the smooth and sharp edges, the lights and the shades, the cools. And the warms. Oh, the jugs look real. I'll give you that. Now feel the chair, the bathtub, the woman. Not any old tub or woman, but the tub of tubs and woman of women. I suppose there's some sense in it. Oh, I know you're clever. Do you think I'd have any patience with you if you weren't? I'd shove you in the first dustbin. I'm trying to teach you something. What? A great happiness. Looking at a big fat totty in a bathtub. Do you think I'm a dirty old man? 
1957, coming off of his Academy Award for Best Actor in that year's number one film and Oscar winner, The Bridge Over the River Kwai, Alec Guinness adapted Joyce Carey's novel, The Horse's Mouth, for the screen. It was his only screenplay, and it was nominated for an Academy Award in 1959. In it, Guinness plays the lead role of Gully Jimson, a cantankerous old genius of a painter who was said to be based upon the novelist's friend, the poet Dylan Thomas. The film follows Gully Jimson from his release from Wormwood Scrubs Prison, seemingly for prank calls, and then it follows him as he pursues increasingly larger and larger blank walls on which to paint his biblically-inspired masterpieces. This includes surreptitiously squatting in the apartment of a couple of art-loving millionaires, gathering a crew of acolytes to paint a condemned church wall, and ultimately, in the sweetest and most humorous cinematic metaphor for an artist's death, setting off to sea in an unfit vessel against a river mist while scoping the side of a gigantic merchant ship for his final great work, all to the triumphant horns of Prokofiev. The film was directed by Ronald Neem, who also directed Guinness in Tunes of Glory and The Card, and the film is full of great British actors who never let the ball drop. It's both light and humorous and deep and soulful, and the scenes where Guinness's Jimson speaks about art have this sacred, I hate to say it, but Jedi-ish quality. (laughs) (laughs) He gets that far off look in his eye and his voice drops and we are in the presence of a force called art. The plot, such as there is, involves the fate of 19 of Jimson's paintings, the 19th of which Jimson and his friends, played by Kay Walsh and Mike Morgan, are trying to get from Jimson's ex-wife, played by Renee Houston, who's really wonderful. They're all, all the actors in this are so great. And while this provides a basis for some well-played hijinks, none of it really concerns Guinness's Jimson as much as the wall he's currently painting or the series of skirts he's tugging flirtatiously in pursuit of paint, brandy, and tobacco. In a career as diverse and as entertaining as any film actor's, I really think this is Guinness's best. I love the color of the film and the energy and the dialogue and the performances are all perfectly musical, but the key to it is Alec Guinness, grinding his usually gentle Stan Laurel-esque voice into a proto-Tom Waitsian growl and throwing himself (laughs) into the role with an entirely different physicality than we've seen from him in any other of his films that I can think of. And uh, so if the performance weren't so deeply grounded by the character's passion for art, which is not an easy thing to demonstrate as an actor in itself, the comedy might seem over the top and clownish, but it doesn't. And this is all the more impressive considering that, uh, well, we know this is a total performance. We know this isn't Guinness playing Guinness. This is Guinness playing an entirely different kind of character, but from the very beginning to the very end, I totally believe it and actually almost like it more than I like the actual Alec Guinness. So, uh, (laughs) yeah, it's it's a great, great film, and I absolutely, it always makes me happy to see it. So, yeah, that's that's the horse's mouth. So, uh, how is the world wrong about this movie? 
Well, I mean, it's on the Criterion Collection, so somebody knows that it's good. And I, in doing some research, there are, uh, you know, there are some appreciations about it that are out there. So it's not a totally unknown film or an unappreciated film. It was nominated for an Academy Award for Best Adapted Screenplay by Alec Guinness. And as I said, it came right after probably his biggest screen role in 1957 in The Bridge Over the River Kwai. So it's not an unknown piece, but for the most part, when I ask people if they've seen it, they haven't, and nor have they even heard of it. And when I watch it, it just, there's so much about it. There's where it sits in Guinness's career, which I think is interesting, but, and we'll definitely get into that. But to me, being that it's in 1958, so just to give you some context, in 1957, that 1957 was the publication of On the Road, Jack Kerouac's breakout novel about the Beats. It was the year of Elvis Presley's Jailhouse Rock, which is also the sort of the beginning of the rock and roll explosion. So this film sort of happens right on top of that, and you can feel it infusing the film. There is this sort of beatnik early rock and roll quality to the film that is not, mm-hmm. it's not in the text, you know, it's in the context and in the, in the, it seems to be burbling up through the film. <laughs> like if the film had been made two, two years earlier, I feel like Gully Jimson would have been a different type character. But in yeah. this, he seems like such a proto beatnik type. Yeah. Uh, like there's a scene where he does this little dance and he's playing bongos on a, like a, a tray. And, <laughs> and when I did some research, there's just, it. I feel like this might be some of the earliest appearance of beatnik type culture in mm-hmm. films. Yeah. It's pretty early. Yeah. And you can also, and it just, and when I watch it, it just feels so much like the anarchic, fun, rebellious, cheeky energy of early Beatles, particularly John Lennon, sort of the the sort of the the humorous class consciousness of it, the tweaking of the privilege of the elites. It the, the whole film feels like it's it lives in the same universe as John Lennon's quote about, you know, the you know, you and the expensive seats can rattle your jewelry. <laughs> that feels like the kind of thing that Gully Jimson would say. And even though I can't find it anywhere, I feel like when people talk about that, the Beatles and England in the early sixties, they should talk about this film as being foundational or influential there. Mm-hmm. And we can get more into talking about the context in terms of where it sits in British cinema and British comedy and in Alec Guinness's career. But <clears throat> But yeah, I think those are the, that sort of is the briefest encapsulation of how I feel like the world is wrong about this film. Or maybe say the world could be more right about this film. I think, how I think this movie exists for people is that they bought the Criterion thing because it was the next Criterion thing to buy. And then it has sat on their shelf wrapped in plastic between the ones they've watched because they just got it to further OCD collection, but they haven't actually watched it, you know, like, like, and people should actually open that 
Criterion disc up and actually watch it. Don't just own it to have to complete the collection. Actually give it your time and watch the damn movie. <laughs> <clears throat> well, let's let's talk about... I, I, I think we need to just jump in on talking about Alec Guinness. Oh, my God. So, have you seen a lot of his films? I really have. Like, the only stuff his I've seen other than Star Wars is all the David Lean stuff. Like, so I've seen everything and they did made a lot of movies together i've seen all the dickens stuff and i've seen bridge on the river kwai and you know and like he, like that's the alec guinness that i know that isn't obi-wan kenobi and then that's kind of it so there was great this was the i've never seen the lady killers or any of those movies so this was the first of that kind of comedic alec, actually not true i've seen kind hearts and coronets which is great and that if no one has seen that movie that's him playing like a whole family it's him basically doing the clumps, but much better and smarter. And it's really, it's one of the first movies I can think of where someone plays like all the characters in the movie. And that is a great uh, Alec Guinness performance. But definitely him in this, in the horse's mouth, is a revelation. Like it, like you said, it's like, it's a true character. Like it's, it's a very well thought out like character that he's playing here. And a really amazing character. And gosh, his throat must have hurt every day. After talking in that voice, I can't imagine. Uh, it's, it's not just it's not just the Gully Jimson voice that he does, <laughs> but he does all these great. He just like he has he does when he does his uh, prank calls and he does the Duchess of Blackpool. <laughs> it feels very like the Goon Show. Uh, if it, this is one of those places where I feel like the. Like the, if you look at the 1950s and you look at Guinness and Peter Sellers, there's this interesting back and forth sort of tug of war. So, mm-hmm. like you said, Alec Guinness plays like I think eight characters in Kind Hearts and Coronets. It's all he doesn't play the lead. It's all about a, it's a film about a guy who is many degrees from becoming a duke, I believe. He, all yeah. these other people have to die in order for him to do it. And then he goes about killing them all. And all the people he kills are played by Alec Guinness. <laughs> Old. He, doesn't, he, plays a, he plays a woman. He plays a young, plays young characters. Plays a, like a, the sea captain. He plays all these different characters. And then you can see. So Peter Sellers, who is already getting a little bit famous as a radio guy, where Alec yeah. Guinness is becoming this big movie star is watching and being like, I can do that. I can do that. And then they're in the Lady Killers together. And then a couple years later, you see uh, you see Alec Guinness being like, okay, well, I can, you know, I can be even funnier than Peter Sellers. I can do, de- like, they're just, there's this, t- it feels like there's this push-pull. And you're right. There is before, if you look at, uh, like on Wikipedia, there's a whole thing of like actors playing multiple roles in a film. And the entry for this one is not only the earliest, but it's the longest. Like even in films <laughs> where, like Peter Sellers was in four films where he played multiple characters, but he was never in a film where he played eight characters. Yeah. <laughs> Did you ever see the film The Man in the White Suit? No, I've, I know of it, but I have not seen it. That's, that was, I th- it, that may have been the first Alec Guinness thing I saw, even before Star Wars, because my mom was a fan of the Ealing comedies, and I remember watching that. And it is a great film. It's really, he's great in it. It's, it's really well acted. It it's, has a lot of uh, sort of class consciousness. 
It's funny. I always, if you want, if you've seen the Peter Sellers film, I'm all right, Jack, it feels like they live in the same universe as well. Although <laughs> in I'm all right, Jack, Peter Sellers plays a much less sympathetic character. And in the man in the white suit, you can just see why people fell in love with Alec Guinness once he got out of the makeup that he employed in the early David Lean films. So, like we should say, let's go back. So Alec Guinness was, in England, the route to being a movie star is you're on stage. And through the 1930s, he was, or the late 30s, he was uh, sort of a star of the British stage from 1936 to 39. And then in 1939, he adapted, he wrote his own adaptation of Great Expectations, that he performed on the British stage, and that was seen by David Lean, who, after World War II, in which uh, I think Lean and Guinness both served in the Army, and the British, I think uh, Guinness was in the British Navy. Anyway, uh, in 1946, once the war is over, David Lean goes on to make Great Expectations, in some way inspired by uh, Guinness's adaptation of it, and cast Guinness in his first screen role as Herbert Pocket in Great Expectations, and then again in 48 in Oliver Twist. And you sort of see, okay, well, this this is the making of sort of a national treasure of an artist. So he goes from the British stage, and then he's first introduced by David Lean, who is going to go on to be sort of the prestige English director of his generation, in two adaptations of Dickens' novels. And then he follows that up with Kind Hearts and Coronets, this feat of acting excellence. And he's kind of a made man at that point. By 1949, you know, maybe, I guess Laurence Olivier was a more famous British actor, but even he... You know, it's sort of like we were talking about in that last episode where like he came to America and got famous. And in England, they were like, oh, Larry's playing with the, you know, doing lowbrow Hollywood while Alec Guinness is our treasure. I think they're I mean, I'm maybe projecting, but it feels like as for an early career run, that's pretty impressive. And then, like I said, to me, the man in the white suit and then the lavender hill mob from 1951 that's the first time we start to see alec guinness at playing anyone who looks like alec guinness before that it's all characters like who is this guy we don't know who he is because he's always playing always buried in makeup and once he takes that makeup off all of a sudden it's like wait a second this guy is a very compelling sympathetic person he makes sense as a romantic lead. He makes sense yeah. as a lovable, put-upon comedic lead. And if you continue along exploring his filmography, the next film that I, re- I really enjoy, it's also on the Criterion Collection, is a film called The Card, where he plays this, again, sort of a, he plays an, another working-class character who's trying to find his way into society. And... He's kind of, a, and he's a scammer in that. Like a lot of these films, like I guess there's a, that's a very sort of English thing. It's like Kind Arts and Coronets is about <laughs> someone trying to climb up, climb the social ladder. Man in the White yeah. Suit is to, is that to some degree. A lot of these, like Lavender Hill Mob, you know, these working class guys trying to pull off a pull off a score. 
they're very they're all really compelling and mostly they're all i can think all of these that we're talking about are black and white which is why i feel like something about just the explosive use of color in the horse's mouth just feels like it goes from the 50s like in 1958 it feels like it's the 60s whereas in 1950s in the films he's doing in 57 like the prisoner it feels like the 50s it it almost feels like the opening chords like the, you can almost I, I want to put the beatles music over 19 over the horse's mouth like i can hear the beatles of 1963 <laughs> being the soundtrack to this movie from 58 so it just Let's energetically it. <laughs> i think that would totally work like especially the scene uh with, towards the end where everybody's pitching together to paint this big kind of big piece that felt so 60s. Like, that does not feel like a scene from a movie in the 50s at all. Yeah. Um, like, this this movie could totally... If you had told me, if I didn't know, if you were like, oh, this movie's from 1964, 1965, I would have believed you. Like, I really... Because there's nothing about this that bogs it down in the 50s so much. Like, maybe if you knew cars or something, you could be like, oh, that's not a car from... You know, but I don't know cars. So it really... Like, you're right. It has that... Like, if, if, this, if this was, like, slightly more stylish... This is totally a Richard Lester movie, you know? Yeah, yeah. And then I think it's, I I just want to put it in context. You know, I said that in 57, I think the big cultural impact of 57 is Elvis Presley and Jack Kerouac. But mm-hmm. there is another big moment, a big cultural shift moment in film in 1957 that I know holds a particular place in your heart. Do you, do you know where I'm heading here? No, which which one? The Delicate Delinquent, the first yeah! Jerry Lewis post <laughs> post Dean Dean and Jerry uh, oh, film. That movie's so good. <laughs> so that's that's another like just things are in 1950. I feel like 1957 is such a watershed. It, to me, it's one of those really defining historical moments. If you study that year, you study the art leading up to that. Like if you sort of see that. Leading up to that, every year before that, it's a Frank Sinatra film and a Frank Sinatra album that's dominating the 50s. And then all of a sudden in 57, something starts to shift. This, yeah. The, the yeah. culture moves in a new direction. Yeah. And the biggest film of that year was starring Alec Guinness, The Bridge Over the River Quiet. It, you know, I don't know how many times this has happened that the number one film in the year also sweeps the Oscars. Yeah. But I think it's a pretty rare thing. Usually there's a, you know, it's, there's the popular films and then there's the critically acclaimed. And this had that quality of being both. Yeah. So you just, it's, it's hard to underestimate how big that made Alec Guinness at the time. Yeah. And that's when he's, I imagine writing the screenplay for The Horse's Mouth. Yeah. Because if it came out in 58, he had they had to be going right from the Ridge, Bridge Over River Kwai right into The Horse's Mouth. And then just to give you some idea of great films from 1958, there are some really good ones. Vertigo, Touch of Evil. Ooh. Some Came Running. Ooh. Ooh. One of my favorite films. Yeah. Others like South Pacific, The Fly, and The Return of the Fly made the same year. Um, the Blob and the the uh, screen debut of Steve McQueen. And interestingly, 
a film that would go on to inspire the movie that Alec Guinness is most well known for. Ooh. A little Akira Kurosawa film called The Hidden Fortress came out yeah. in 1958. What a good year and, for movies. Yeah, yeah. Damn. <laughs> also, uh, The Young Lions, Cat on a Hot Tin Roof, The Defiant Ones, High School Confidential. I feel like wow. that's kind of... Yeah. I feel like, in a way, High School Confidential is the closest in feeling <laughs> to The Horse's Mouth, which, again, yeah. it's... Such a young feeling film about this old guy. <laughs> it <Just>. really is. <laughs> I, I just, I absolutely love it. Um, so that just to give you a sense of what 1958 was, and uh, and a great year for movies, but definitely the horse's mouth should be in that conversation. I guess we've talked a little bit about Star Wars. That's sort of the the take on Alec Guinness is that he hated Star Wars and he hated being associated with Star Wars. And, you know, I guess I can understand that. But there's also a part of it. When you were watching this, did you feel the Obi-Wan? Like, I felt like Gully Jimson might be the closest (laughs) character in his work to Obi-Wan Kenobi and that he's this older guy old wise guy connected to some sort of mystical force yeah in this case that's art and he is constantly or not constantly but he's regularly holding forth on the power of this mystical force yeah did you feel that i mean i feel like i try to fight against feeling that when i watch old elgiz movies because i feel like the world is so wrong by only remembering him for Star Wars for the most part that I feel like I want to try to always block it out of my mind when I watch things because I can't help but do that. And I did do that with this. And I can't tell if it's just, is that because that's the Alleginus I've seen the most? Or is there actually something you know, pulling from something here? And I think you're totally right. Like, I think it definitely is there. Like, he also has... A young guy following him around trying to learn his philosophy and his ways, you know, like that's also in this movie. Um, and like, yeah, it just, he definitely, like the way he spouts like his sort of outlook on life feels like the ponderings of an Obi-Wan Kenobi in a way, in a way, like there definitely is like a connection there. I feel it must be. Yeah. And if you watch, like if you watch a bunch of his other films, you'll see that that is not usually the case. Like your yeah. your instinct to fight against that, you don't have to. Like if you watch Our, Our Man in Havana or Tunes of Glory or Bridge Over the River Kwai or Kind Hearts and Coronets or like any, any of these films, it's way more Stan Laurel, Fred Astaire, you know, <laughs> like this this light touch. He's, you know, he's he's very sympathetic and... And his voice is up here, and he, 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 this, you know, but then this, he's got the beard, and he's wizened, and <laughs> <laughs> it's just, it, it does, it is so proto Obi Wan that I like. If you again watch more of his films and then go back and watch this, and you'll be like, oh yeah, it's okay, it's okay to feel that way about this one. <laughs> <laughs> it again, it it would be. In, as we play with different music for this, if you laid in that uh, the music that plays under Obi Wan <laughs> when he talks about the Force, under 
Gully Jimson when he talks about art, you just see that there's the, this like weird, this tonal shift that... Please do that. <laughs> You're missing a big slice of life, Cookie. Half a minute of revelations worth a million years of no nothing. Who lives a million years? A million people every 12 months. I'll show you how to look at a picture. Don't look at it. Feel it with your eyes. First feel the shapes in the flat, like patterns. Then feel it in the round. Feel all the smooth and sharp edges. The lights and the shades. The cools and the warms. The the other the other surprise when I watched this movie was uh, Michael Gao. Oh yeah, and I and he's another one who's known for kind of known more for his big franchise. He was the Alfred the Butler in the Tim Burton Batman movies, but here he plays another wild artist, a sculptor, uh, and and he's really good. And he kind of adds to this anarchy that these these characters kind of uh, throw about. Uh, he's so funny in this. He's really good. And I think this is yeah. probably the earliest movie I've seen him in. I don't, I can't think of one before this that I recognized him in. He's really, he plays one of the sort of villain characters in <laughs> the man in the white suit with. Oh, um, okay. So they have a, a Guinness and I, I'm not sure if it's Gao or Goff, but uh, yeah, you say neither. Gao, I'll say Goff. And then we'll, one of us will be right. Um, but <laughs> So there's a history of the two of them being adversaries. And yeah, the adversarial relationship between the two of them in uh, in the horse's mouth is one of many high points. Maybe let's <laughs> let's let's start let's walk through some of the beats here and we'll yeah. get to know some of these characters. So when the movie starts it starts with Gully Jimson being let out of prison. Again, for prank calling his benefactor too much, <laughs> which I just think is uh, like it's not mentioned upon in the film as being funny, but I think that that's funny. It's very and funny. <laughs> he's greeted by his young friend, whose name is Nosy, played by uh, Mike Morgan. Is that the, the character's name? Yeah, Mike Morgan. And this is where the film has this sort of aching sadness that I also feel like would speak to that generation of early rockers that John Lennon was a part of that the idea that there's this young sort of a proto I mean he's not he's not James Dean in the sense that he's brooding sexy character like James Dean but he's like James Dean and that he's a character he's an actor who was in two films both with Alec Guinness and then died suddenly at the end of making the horse's mouth from uh, I think meningitis, and oh, wow. actually had to have some of his uh, uh, dialogue dubbed by other actors. And so you just had to imagine that if you're a young, if you're the young actor or the young viewer who is watching this film and relating to him, you know. So the the film sort of metaphorically ends with Gully Jimson's death, but. In reality, it ends with the death of this Mike Morgan character, who is the youthful character. And I just feel like that speaks to a certain adolescent sense of, you know, the the beautiful sadness of art. I don't know. And it just mm-hmm. gives the film this sort of, in retrospect a, retrospect, a melancholic quality that, you know, was you know, unintended, but 
feels like he gives the film some resonance. But what I find was really funny is that so he goes, so his young acolyte, Nosy, played by Mike Morgan, comes to greet him. And Golly Jimson immediately steals his bicycle. <laughs> and... <laughs> And there's a great scene with the with, with Nosy running after him, calling the cops and these guys running down the street in English clothes from that time period. And it just looks like if they if you just put in a, a bunch of girls chasing after them, they even look like proto Beatles running down the street. <laughs> so anyway, so uh, so uh, Jimson steals Nosy's bicycle and then heads back to his houseboat. He lives on a houseboat that's been damaged by vandals. But first he stops into the little bar where he hangs out and meets his friend, played by Kay Walsh, uh, a great British actor of the time, who also was one of the screenwriters on the film adaptation of Great Expectations with Ronald Neem. Strangely, Alec Guinness wasn't invited to do any writing on that. Uh, hmm. But she plays this barmaid named Dee Coker and... I'll drop in just one of her quotes here, because they're great. That's better. How good fashion you get what you want out of life. That's been my experience. Now, what was it? The usual. They tried religion on me as soon as they saw what I was going to look like. They always tried on the flatfoot squaws, but I had my pride. It's not fair of God to make a girl and give her a face like mine. No religion for Koki. What do you think about that character? She's really good. I've never seen her in anything before. And it's just sort of like she it's it's she she seems sort of she's a good like almost like the straight man to to Ella Guinness's character. You know, like she's she's like helping him in a way, but she's also kind of like fed up with some of his shenanigans, but goes along with it. It's like a good they have a good back and forth through the whole movie. Yeah. She's she's really mean to him in a way that you <laughs> clearly know is founded in love yeah but she's did just does does doesn't give him an inch isn't does not appreciate his art but she does <laughs> and it's a it's a a great i just love that it is she's a perfect foil for him and mm -hmm. keeps him yeah. keeps him moving through the film in a way that he wouldn't if she wasn't pushing him mm -hmm. and then one of my favorite characters in the film is also in this scene. He's an old sailor who seems like he must have some kind of shell shock or something. Yeah. I'm a primitive myself, but I'm not one of the strict ones. Now, my missus is a peculiar. She is strict. Wind shifted. He's played by a, an actor named Reginald Beckwith. And he's just constantly dropping these nautical non sequiturs and showing up. <laughs> As kind of like a like a weird Greek chorus in the film. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> but did you? I, I feel I feel like that might be he might be in your wheelhouse of comedy. <laughs> I like people just randomly shouting things. <laughs> so that's definitely <laughs> definitely a pleasure. Like when Alakinis when he's when he's at the bar and he just got or when the. The, the sailor character played by Reginald Beckwith is at the bar and he's just got a beer with a nice head on it. And then Gully Jimson opens the door and you just see the wind blow the <laughs> yeah. like, wind shifted. <laughs> it just, I just I love I love that character. He doesn't really have he doesn't have a lot to do, but he is I think he's probably the most 
non-essential character in the film who gives it character. He's almost like the bird in Jack and Jill. <laughs> Where were you? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> like, like he, you, you don't really care about his character, but every time he shows up on screen, you're like, oh, yeah, I, I'm happy. <laughs> Thank you, movie. Thank you, movie, for giving me this, this brief moment of just pure nonsense. <laughs> so then we get kind of into the plot because... I guess Jimson, Gully Jimson owes some money to Kay Walsh and she's trying to, for the, the D Coker character, and she's trying to get that money through chasing after some paintings that Gully Jimson painted that are now in the possession of a multiple of different character, uh, multiple different characters as they try and find them. And Gully Jimson does not care about this pursuit at all. And yeah. sort of is dragged along <laughs> like a child. And then, so, and sh the, the interplay between, I love this first scene where the K. Walsh D. Coker character drags him to find his ex-wife, who was the subject of many of his paintings. Yeah. Um, and we will get into talking about the paintings. And maybe, maybe now is actually a good time to talk about this because they did bring in, this is one of those things when you're making a movie about a painter, especially if it's not Vincent van Gogh or someone who, whose paintings you can just cut to and be like, yeah, these are brilliant. The idea of showing the work of a supposedly brilliant artist on film is one of those fraught areas. Yeah. Uh, we could discuss the sculptures of Burt Reynolds' character in The Man Who Loved Women <laughs> as an example, but let's not. Uh, for this one, they, uh, they hired a, a painter named John Bratby. Mm -hmm. And his style, he was part of the kitchen sink school uh, of English provincial realist artists. Mm -hmm. But what I think is most interesting about him is suppose is like, like his style was he didn't use a paintbrush. He would just squeeze the paint out of the tube and put it on and squeeze it onto the onto the canvas. And although that's not the style that Jimson employs in the film, it gives all of his work this really very you can see how it just reads on film as yeah. really emotional and really dramatic. Yeah, I love the art of this movie. Like it looks like you can just see the texture on it and it just has a very interesting like it's almost like looking like the way he draws people kind of reminded me of like those exhibits of like the Chinese prisoners where just like their muscles like the way he has color in the the uh just the contour and just like the, the texture of it is very startling. It's really good. Very good. So, yeah. So one of the, so one of the paintings we see a lot is a painting uh, that is of his ex-wife's character in the tub. And she's basically a woman, a naked woman with no skin pretty much. Yeah. yeah. And so anyway, in this scene where the D Coker character is trying to, get her to relinquish the paintings. First of all, it's the first of many scenes with Gully Jimson shamelessly flirting with tugging the skirts and pinching the bottoms <laughs> of sort of older women who are maybe slightly younger than his character, but still 
uh, older women in the in the the world of the film, and so this leads to this. They find out that uh, that she actually sold the paintings to uh, Jimson's benefactor, the old uh, English fellow that uh, Jimson has been prank calling, and which led to him getting sent to prison. And mm-hmm. so they, you know, and they're you know after they can't get the paintings from uh the the ex-wife played by Renee Houston who uh also did a lot of work with Polanski she was in the film Repulsion mm. and in Cul-de-sac mm. and she's really great i love the understated thing that she's like that's right like no matter what the D. Coker character throws at her she's like oh yes that's she's like that's right sort of the the uh the the English definition of passive aggressive, like some completely <laughs> kind, but giving nothing. That's right. And so then they, they hightail it off to the, to Hickson, the benefactor's place. And she's trying to get money out of, uh, out of him. And then he tells that she tells her that she's been, that he's been giving Gully Jimson money all along. And he would continue if Gully Jimson would just stop calling him because it upsets the servants. <laughs> And meanwhile, Gully Jimson is trying to steal a bunch of art, a bunch of sculptures from from his benefactor's place. He's a thief. This guy, he is he is definitely a thief. He does not like. It's funny that he got arrested for prank calling because prank calls. this guy is constantly stealing stuff from rich yeah, people. Yeah. But yeah. Uh, but anyway, so then there's more hijinks there, and there's a great scene where uh, Guinness tries to explain to D. Coker how to look at a painting. And it's one of those great sort of uh, Obi-Wan moments. It's like, it really slows down. And the interaction between the two of them is great. Like, you can Mm -hmm. see that she starts to see it and starts to get it, but she still won't give him an inch. Like, oh, I know you're clever, but I don't want to see some some naked toddy in a bath. What am I, a (laughs) middle-aged man? (laughs) What are you And then this leads. So then, uh, they escape from the from the benefactor's place and end up in a in a cab with a brief cameo with the actor Peter Bull, who you might mm-hmm. recognize from a lot of British comedies from that era. Do you have a, a favorite Peter Bull performance? He was he the is he the one that was in Doctor Strangelove? Yes. He yes, plays that, yeah, uh, he plays one of the Russians or something in that. Yeah, he right? plays the Russian minister, yes. Yeah. That would be my favorite. He's really good in that. And like I instantly recognize him because he has just kind of that face where you're like, Oh, there's that guy. <laughs> yeah. And he's just barely there for a second and then gone. And then this gets into I think probably my favorite part of the film mm-hmm. when so uh this is when D. Coker gets out of the car. She's like, oh, you're a liar. You're, you know, whatever. And But he's on his way to go meet these millionaires who had sent him a letter looking for one of his paintings. And he shows up at their apartment. And they're, the, the millionaires aren't there, but their personal secretary is. And he sort of lets him in. He's like, oh, okay. Uh, I guess I did write to you. Come on in. And he offers him tea, and but then he starts drinking brandy. Very his his uh, consumption of brandy is very similar to Dudley Moore's <laughs> consumption yeah. of brandy it's in just... the movie Ten. Watching them just 
down snifter <laughs> after snifter of brandy very quickly. Have uh, you ever tried to drink brandy that way? No. No, no. it's a waste of brandy. You want to, that's the whole point of the snifter. So you can like stop and take a whiff and go, ah, brandy. But they just like, they slam it like a big gulp. <laughs> yeah. That's got to be a British thing. I'm just like, I mean, like in all those Alfred Hitchcock, the movies, the British ones, whenever a lady faints, they're like, quick, pour her a glass of brandy. And they make her down some brandy to wake up. So maybe this is just like their coffee is brandy. <laughs> they need it to stay alert and to move around and uh, not a bad life. <laughs> yeah, I guess. <laughs> uh, but so they're just the way. I just I love this is the part that also feels very much like that rattle your jewelry John Lennon thing. So the uh, these millionaires come in and by now he's already had a drink, maybe a, one and a half snifters of brandy. <laughs> and he's and he's noticed this is the first time he sees this big wall and yeah. he's just you can just tell he is in love with this wall. He's going to paint it. He will do and say anything. He is just, this is that, I think this is what makes the character lovable. Like if he, if that wall were Bo Derek, I wouldn't sympathize with him. If that wall <laughs> were a million dollars, I wouldn't sympathize with him. But because that wall is just a blank wall that he wants to paint, yeah, he can lie, steal, cheat, do anything like I get it. I buy it. I love it. Yeah. <laughs> and, and so he sort of, he insults these millionaires and tells them about this idea to paint this mural and comes on very, you know, in a very, the way that he comes on to the wife, he's like, <laughs> I shall sleep here. But there are only two beds, ours and Arnold. Lovely. Well, Bob, Bobby will sleep with Al, and I will turn in with you. Uh, I'm 50-odd, well, call it 60-odd. No, 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 come here, come here, come here. So it's unlikely you'll be um, inconvenienced. You two can sleep together, and you and the lady here. It feels very like Groucho Marx, those moments. Yes, 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 it does. like the yeah the way that Groucho Marx would flirt with Margaret Dumont or just like like just like this open openly inappropriate you know <laughs> but with the, with that anarchy like it's just like it's very there's a lot of this movie that feels kind of Marx Brothersy to me yeah especially yeah. this whole part like where this part goes feels like a bit from a Marx Brothers movie yeah so basically so then he falls asleep he passes out they put him to bed they go off on their six-week vacation that they were preparing for with the idea that he's going to wake up the cleaning lady is going to give the key to the porter the porter's going to clean this guy clear this guy out and that'll be the end of it but gully jimson scams the key out of the cleaning lady refuses to give it to the porter <laughs> makes up that they that they've asked him to stay there to paint this mural and then pretty much sets up residence in this house while <laughs> sneaking out and selling all of their stuff to pay for his residency in their apartment and inviting all these characters in. Actually, because he wants, he's really, this is where we start to get into uh, what 
in you know a, a later era might be referred to as Gully Jimson's foot fetish. He is <laughs> obsessed with feet, but you understand it sort of as a painter. It makes sense. He's you know he's he's talks about the <laughs> the cleaning lady's feet. Yeah, and he invites uh, this. Uh, a black actor named Elton Olivier, Olivieri in his yeah. only film role. He plays the black foot model who, <laughs> ha, who he has come up and sit, sits on the couch drinking brandy. And there's a great scene where... But Sir Jimson, sir, he said he wanted to see me. How do I know that? That's what Sir Jimson said, sir. All right. Go on, use the stairs. Top floor, 6B. Sir Jimson said I wasn't to walk, sir. I not to tie my feet. Come on, then. How did you get such feet? What kind of feet, sir? Cheeky feet. <laughs> I don't know, sir. What you do for a living? I'm a waiter, sir. Ah, so that's it. It's just a nice little, again, it feels like a, it feels, that feel, that moment feels way more like a film, a moment out of a 60s film. Yeah. Than out of a 50s film. And the way it starts to get out of hand, because this is when Michael Gow or Golf shows up, and he just sort of, Shows up uninvited. He just heard about this sort of happening of this these artists and these people hanging out. So he shows up with his mo- with the model, and they lower the cement block through the roof, and it just turns into this total mess. And that's when it really starts to feel like a Terry Southern movie or something. Like this feels like a scene that would be in the Magic Christian, or you know, like it has that that anarchy feel that you don't see in movies from the fifties so much. And this is the best part of the movie, but it also kind of made me the sad, saddest. I think it's because I watched it right, I think maybe this, the right after 10, that my brain was in Blake Edwards' world, and I wanted this to turn into the party where the rest of the movie was just an hour of this place just building and things getting more and more out of hand. <laughs> and the fact that it's only in the middle of the movie was a, was a tad disappointing because I wanted just the movie to go off the rails into just one long mess of this apartment. Um, <laughs> and what's funny is it also reminded me of sort of like the end of Gambit when things start getting out of hand when they're trying to rob the place. And I didn't realize that that movie's also by Ronald Name. I didn't know that he directed Gambit, which totally makes sense. I haven't Another... seen Gambit. What's what? What? Tell me. Tell us a little bit about. You've it. never seen Gambit. <laughs> Says Man, the guy who's great. never seen What's it's, Up Doc. Okay, go on. It's yeah. Gambit's really good. It's it's another movie where Michael Caine is this driven thief, and he recruits Shirley MacLaine to like rob, uh, like to, to steal this jewelry. But like this part of this movie, like the heist in the in like in this room that it takes place in, it becomes a mess and things kind of get out of hand. And so it's like it's definitely something Ronald Neem is good at. Also explains why he maybe was hired to do the Poseidon Adventure. It's like we want a bunch of stuff falling apart and being this big mess. Like it's so good. And and like the relationship the, the relationship that Ella Guinness has with Michael Gow is really funny where you can tell they don't really like each other, but like, but it, which is really funny because they're people that other people don't really like so much. And so to see them kind of like scowl at each other, but be like, fine, you do your art over here and I'll do my art over here. It's really, well, yeah, good. we should, we should. So basically <laughs> he scams his way in. He does, he's not going to let Ella Guinness isn't going to let him stay there until he says, but I've got a big commission. Like, okay, I'll charge you rent. You can come in, okay? <laughs> and so then he comes and he's lowering in this big block of granite or something to do his sculpting. And through uh, 
through some hijinks and shenanigans, the block gets dropped and falls through the floor and into the downstairs apartment, which we were told <laughs> earlier is uh, owned by a woman who is also away on holiday. And so <laughs> Michael Goff immediately says, okay, well, I'll move downstairs. And so he <laughs> sets up downstairs. There's a hole in the floor upstairs. And they're all living in squalor, even though it's yeah. these, they're these rich people's apartments. They're eating little, like eating out of cans of, you know, cold cans of chili or whatever. <laughs> and they can't afford, like he can't afford the black paint. So they decide to f- paint the black foot model's feet in white and yeah. <laughs> there's a model down in the in the bottom part for the sculptor who has just been nude with her arms over her head for weeks and is cramping up and yeah and uh and i i love the bit about the sculptor who just he starts with this huge block of granite and it just keeps getting smaller and smaller <laughs> and smaller yeah. he's seeking and he can't find it and they have this there's i love the the inter- interchange between um, the two artist characters when they're both sort of at their wits end with their work and they try to get encouragement from each other but all they can do is insult each other and make mm-hmm. themselves like give they give each other the exact opposite of what they both need which is like an encouraging pat on the back <laughs> mm-hmm. but but it also really does communicate this quality like something you can tell that the people who made this film understand art from the experience of the artist. Yeah. Because they're not jokes. I feel like all of these jokes are coming from within the artist's mind as opposed to mocking the artist's sensibility. Even the thing about the guy just whittling that stone down till its smallest point, it seems pointless, but there's also something as an artist, you know what that's like when you've written something well past the point when you should have stopped. You know, when you, you, you know, you're, you're tinkering with your song well, long, far, far past the point where you should have just been like, oh man, that we did not need that extra string, sing, uh, string section, Lou Reed. Uh, like it, <laughs> it really gets something that I, that I love. And then of course there's the, there's the great moment of fi- Gully Jimson realizing, oh, I don't even like this painting anymore. And you, we see it and it's amazing. Like he achieved <laughs> yeah. what he wanted to achieve. Yeah. There's this, this huge, beautiful mural on this, just the, the wall of this destroyed apartment. And he's like, <laughs> oh, I didn't, I didn't do it. It didn't succeed. And then he's at the door when the millionaires come home and they're like, this is the wrong place. And they come in and at this point, oh, he's he's rolled the carpet over the over the floor. So they yeah. <laughs> they come in and immediately rush towards the the mural to see what's gone on, and yeah. they fall through the floor, <laughs> all three of them. And Gully Jimson lets himself out, and just yeah. walks off, <laughs> sneaks out. <laughs> it's well, it really is one of the best scenes of any comedy. Like that whole thirty minute, twenty minute, however long that part that whole segment is. It's so good. It's it's to me the true highlight of the whole movie. Yeah, it it's where we really I to me the movie really starts when he sees that wall. He comes in, he's just trying to scam them for money. That's all he, he's going to try and sell them a painting yeah. and get 7000 pounds and that's it. But when he sees that wall, 
It really is. I mean, we're doing the, we're recording these on the same day. It really is the same as when Dudley Morris sees Bo Derek for the first time in ten. <laughs> it's like he's just obsessed and he can't think of anything else. And to me, I think, like I said in in the description, the movie is about his pursuit of bigger and bigger walls. Everything else mm-hmm. is sort of the stuff that has to happen in a movie. But if there weren't things standing between gully jimson and painting on those like if you just walked in and they were like oh yeah paint it then he would have just happily sat there and paint he would have just painted it like yeah there wouldn't have been any hijinks yeah (laughs) and and it's similarly so then he he goes back to his to his house boat and d coker takes care of him and the Oh, by the way, Mike Morgan, the kid, has been with him through this whole process. He's basically become mm-hmm. his assistant, helping him pawn the rich people's stuff and go out and get get supplies and whatnot. But then he comes back and he's he's on the boat and he finds out that his benefactor has died, which is a really great scene. I love that scene where D. Coker is telling him that Hickson has died and we can see on Guinness's face, how this is like a huge and troubling, probably it's like the only time in the movie where we really see something have an impact, like an emotional Mm -hmm. impact on him that doesn't have to do with his own art. Yeah. And she kind of mocks him for his silence. And we can, I just love that in a movie where we see something and really feel it while everyone around it, while the, the other characters in the film completely misinterpret or misunderstand a moment. Maybe it's the world is wrong in me. Like that is like a, such a great world is wrong moment. Like she, the, the film shows us the truth, but it also shows us how the truth goes unseen by the people in that world. Mm-hmm. But the, what we find out then is that Hickson has given away, has donated Gully Jimson's art to the nation. And now he's a star. He's an old star. Yeah. And we have him we have scenes of him going to the to the gallery to see his work and he sees his his uh ex-wife and former model waiting to see the work and she there's a great scene where they're they're both manipulating each other. Like he's trying to get the 19th painting out of her and she <laughs> is trying to get everyone to notice that she's friends with the famous artist. Yeah, and and they go off and get drunk together, and the scenes of them drunk together, um, <laughs> you know, you know why I loved it. Why? Because of the mustache. Come on, he's uh, <laughs> so he goes back to her place. They get drunk. They go back to her place, and they're and he's singing songs, but he's wearing this cowboy hat and a fake red mustache that uh, I guess yes. were the are, belonged to her son. Yeah, and. <laughs> I just loved that. You know how I, you know how I feel about how I feel about mustaches in, especially oh. in British comedies. Oh yeah, they love they love the mustache, and uh, and of course he thinks he's got the the painting, but he doesn't. She has the <laughs> upper hand on him. But again, we have some more great Alec Guinness flirting. Like oh, I just something about old people doing sexy flirting feels like so optimistic. <laughs> it makes me feel so. Like, I don't know, just like something that's really the opposite of pervy. Like, it's just so, like, seems so natural and cute and wonderful. I don't yeah, know. Yeah, and you're like, 
you're like good for them <laughs> yeah <laughs> like we should all be so you know let in that way when we're old yeah well yeah. when like when he like if he was pinching the butt and pulling the the skirt of some young young woman you'd be like oh it's creepy but when he's you know He's flirting with his ex-wife that way. You're like, this is a good day for her. She loves, of course she loves it. She, she loves being seen that way by this guy. Cause she, you know, and you could tell like they, there's lots of jokes. Like she kept a painting of herself on the bed and yeah. there, you know, there's a flirty way that you can tell that the painting of that, the, the, the creation of that painting involved maybe some activity on that bed. And it's just like, it's just so, I, adorable and sweet i love that and he's sort of like he's again it's like he's a guy who's kind of got he's kind of got two or three girlfriends but he's also kind of got no girlfriends yeah he's just have you known artists like this because i've known artists who are like this yeah oh yeah that yeah it's it's definitely a type not all artists but there are some my brother is like this yeah. <laughs> yeah. He lives in a squat in Europe. He's an artist. He, you know, he is completely comfortable with chaos and squalor and not knowing where things are going. And, uh, you know, and it can be really frustrating. Like, I find myself, I end up being playing the decoker to him when we're together. <laughs> and <funny>. it's <laughs> so... I, maybe there's also something about this film that like that speaks to me in that way. It's like, oh, it makes it just makes me feel closer to my bro. <laughs> um, let's see what else. What else is there here? I guess we're getting close to the end of the film. So basically, uh, this is when he finds his next great art piece. Uh, there he's hanging out outside of a church with Mike Morgan and a black cat runs in and they chase it in and he sees an even bigger wall than the wall at the millionaire's place in this condemned church. And that's Mm -hmm. where he gathers this whole crew of young artists to come and study with the great famous Gully Jimson. And he has (laughs) them all painting sections of the wall and in this case not not a lot of feet this is more about a a lot of animals what is this like the what what was the name of the 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 rising of lazarus was the film was the painting in the millionaire's yeah apartment what was this one what was the theme of this one it was another biblical one something about the maybe the fall from the garden or something anyway so they they paint this huge mural on this wall as I guess they're con- they're tearing down the church around them. Well, they don't really show that, but he the, when they go in, it's a full church, and by the time the mural is done, all that's left is the last bl- uh, the last wall that's mm-hmm. on which this uh, mural is kept or has uh, has been painted. And basically, they're going to paint it, and as soon as they're done painting it the demolition crews are ready to knock it over. And Gully Jimson, in a moment of uh, insight and compassion, realizes that he has to be the one to knock it over because mm-hmm. anyone else would be, you know, would just be too hard. Like they don't like forgive. Them. It's a definitely a forgive them, Lord. They know not what they do kind of moment. Mm-hmm. Uh, and there is it's it's there is a, an odd religious quality 
uh, underpins this film that is anything but religious. Did you? What did you make of that? I didn't. I didn't. I didn't pick up on that, but that's an interesting take for sure. Well, just all of his paintings that he's making during the film have a biblical quality to them. Yeah, I guess I didn't really think about that, but that is true. Uh, which is you just wouldn't see that. You know, you wouldn't see that coming from this character who's all about flirting and drinking and smoking and stealing. And like, this is a guy who does not take the the Ten Commandments that seriously. Uh, But uh, there's a... Did you... And did you... When I was watching the the scene where the wall comes down with the big mural on it, it really made me think of Tim Robbins' The Cradle Will Rock, which also mm-hmm. ends with yeah. the destruction of yeah. a mural. Did you yes. think about that? I I didn't, but now that you're saying it, I'm like, that's totally, yeah. Yes, that, that's a very uh, striking image. I mean, it's just something really striking to see, like, this work of art, whether it's good or not, just be destroyed, you know, just be brought to rubble. It's it's definitely, like, a big symbol. It's a, it's a good symbol to put in a movie. And uh, in the interview that uh, with Ronald Neem, that's also on, uh, on the Criterion channel, he talks about how stressful that was because they could only they only had one <laughs> shot at it. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> and it really did come out. It's perfect the way it falls, yeah. and yeah. Um, and that pretty much kicks off the end of the film. Having done this great. Sort of the masterpiece is not just in the the creation of it, but in the destruction of it and the act of the destruction. It makes it an even greater work of art. And with that, Gully Jimson heads back to the ship. He gets on the boat, which is we've never seen. We, we we're told it's like it's a faulty vessel that there's there's yeah. as much water outside inside as out. He gets on the boat. He undoes the mooring and sets off to see with the triumphant music playing and in the book, I suppose, and I'm going to read the book and maybe come back and give a, a brief comparison between the two once I have. But uh, in the book, the character dies. And in the movie, the character has this triumphant moment of pure art where he gets on this faulty vessel. He heads off to sea and we see him, floating along next to this big merchant vessel and seeing the next great canvas, which is, of course, it's impossible that he could ever paint it. But it just that it's such a a wonderfully triumphant ending that is perfectly uh, in sync with the feeling of the movie. Mm -hmm. But knowing that it's a metaphor for death makes it to me even, even better. Because it's not mm-hmm. like that. It doesn't feel like a fake happy ending. No. It feels yeah. like an artistic take on a very sad ending. And that yes. makes it even like just it makes it feel very similar to the failure of his painting on the millionaire millionaire's wall or the destruction of the painting on the church wall. Like this is a guy whose art is based in futility. Mm-hmm. And. I don't know. There's just, I feel like that's such a great inspirational way to end a film like this. Yeah. So that's, that's the plot of, of the film. Um, 
are there any high points that you feel like we, we, we missed out on? I really liked the detail in the wardrobe of how there would be little spatters of paint on Eleganus's like sweater. Like even before you saw scenes of him painting, he's just walking around with these clothes that always have paint on it. I thought that was a really nice touch. Like all of his clothes. <laughs> it's just, it could just be a little smudge, but it's there. I think that's really good. I got really excited when I saw the billboard on the bus for Gordon's gin. Because <laughs> I love Gordon's gin. And of course, that's the gin that James Bond drinks. So that was very thrilling to see a billboard for Gordon's gin. And then the other thing that struck me was that I wonder, and I, I know, I, I mean, it's weird because it's how he really talks, but Nick Nolte in, in Martin Scorsese's Life Lessons, the segment of New York Stories, talks like elegant artist in this, but that's just how Nick Nolte talks. But like, I wonder oh, yeah. if that was in the casting when Scorsese, because clearly Scorsese's seen this because it's a movie that's old and good. And, but like that movie, another movie about like a tortured artist who's driven and driving everyone crazy in a more dramatic setting, but like, just like that kind of raspy, that scraggly voiced artist, um, <laughs> reminded me of Nick Nolte in that movie. Um, uh yeah so that, that those are the things that stood up for me <laughs> yeah I, it's funny i hadn't thought about that i was trying to think about other portrayals of artists on film and that, i remember that i i the thing I, I don't remember anything about that except the scenes with nick nolte painting mm-hmm. to music to listen while listening to bob dylan and i i it it obviously was a striking enough uh, representation of an artist on film that that's <laughs> the only thing that that remains with me. It's interesting. So uh, Ronald Neem in his interview about this on the Criterion Channel, he says that this uh, the project was originally brought to him by Claude Rains. That's a different the actor movie. Claude Rains <laughs> wanted to play this character, and. Yeah, and Ronald Neem was like, I don't see, I, I, it's a great book, but I don't see a movie in it. And just sort of left it there. And then Alec Guinness brought it to him, and so he wanted to do it. And he said the same thing. He's like, I think it's a good, it's a really great book, but I don't see a, a movie in it. And Alec Guinness was like, well, can I write yeah. it? If you let me, let me write it. And I think I, I think there's a movie in it. And then he did. And he was like, oh, yeah. So uh, bo- what's interesting about that is, like you said, if it is, cl- if, if Claude Rains is playing this character, a very, very different movie. <laughs> not a not a comedy at that point. Or like you just can't imagine. Although who knows? I mean, yeah, you just you can't yeah. imagine that it would have that same anarchic feel. I just I can't yeah. imagine. Maybe Claude Rains had that in him. He's a great actor, um, but also a, a deeper appreciation of Guinness. That, yeah. He read this and saw how this yeah. could be a movie yeah. before even the director could. Uh, are there other are there other um, sort of favorite films about artists that stand out for you? I mean, one my favorite is that Scorsese one. Like, I find that one so inspiring. I love it. I, it's so good. It's one of my favorite movies. Uh, and if no one's seen it, it's it's great. It's part of the new york stories movie i really love like it's hard because most of them are about real people and this is sort of like a different world of like these made-up artists but like for the ones based on real people like i really like basquiat i think that's a great movie uh really good movie 
Um, I think uh, doc, the documentary Enter Through the Gift Shop is an amazing film about an artist. Uh, the one about Banksy. Or Exit Through the Gift Shop, I mean. And uh, I've never seen Lust for Life, the uh, Kirk Douglas Van Gogh movie. It's the, I think it's, I think I've seen almost all of the Vincent Van Gogh films or Vincent Van Gogh films. And I think that's the least of them. My favorite, (laughs) my favorite is Vincent and Theo. I love. Oh, that's great. Oh yeah. That's really good. That's a great one. But also uh, the recent one with Willem Dafoe at Eternity's Mm. Gate. That's also Mm -hmm. really, really good. But I feel like. In a way, Vince, uh, Vincent and Theo lives right at the center. Like, Lust for Life is, I don't know. It just, I don't, yeah, I don't buy it as much. And <laughs> and Eternity's Gate, I, at Eternity's Gate, maybe I buy it like too much. It's like, it's so intense that yeah. it really, it, Willem Dafoe's performance almost outshines the, the, the Vincent Van Gogh-ness. But hmm. Tim Roth, in uh, Vincent and Theo really, yeah, really nails good. it for yeah. me. Have you seen the agony and the ecstasy with no. Charlton Heston as what's the, Michelangelo, not Michelangelo. He plays. Yes. Yes. With Charlton Heston as Michelangelo. Um, did you see big eyes? No. Ah, neither of us has seen big eyes. Uh, uh, we should. Um, so, okay. How about Pollock? Uh, no, I've never seen that one. I should. I want to watch that one. I should watch that one. So basically, not big. Not so big on the painters and film. <laughs> it's not. You, you see them, but it's not like you. It's not like oh, there's another movie about a great painter. I got to go see it. <laughs> um. Yeah, if uh, if you're listening and you want to recommend good films about painters that we should check out, you know, please send that to us at contact yeah, at the world is wrong podcast dot com. There's one other thing I wanted to point out in my research. Uh, I f- I found that uh, I guess David Lean and Alec Guinness had a somewhat tempestuous relationship, but David Lean always cast him in his films because he called Alec Guinness his lucky charm. As an yeah. actor, which was borne out because Alec Guinness refused to be in the film Ryan's Daughter, which was <laughs> the one major flop in yeah. <laughs> Lean's career. And as we spoke about in our episode with Larry Bishop, was the film that pretty much ended the the acting career of Christopher Jones. So yeah. hmm. makes you wish that, uh, you know... And, and, it makes you want to like run a test, like go back. Like if I had a time machine, maybe what I do is I go back and say, hey, I just need to know if Ryan's daughter would be a success if Alec Guinness was in it. Here, Alec Guinness, here's an extra X amount of money. Go do this film. We'll just see if we can save the career of Christopher <laughs> Jones and make this film a hit or if it would have been a failure, even if you'd been in it. Was it a good choice not to be in it or was it a bad choice? We'll never know. We'll never know. And uh, and I, I still haven't seen Ryan's daughter, but I, I, I know I need to. Yeah, I don't know about there. What else there is to say about this film other than that it's fantastic. That uh, you know, I I recommend if you feel like going down the Alec Guinness rabbit hole, there's a lot there. The film that he says he's the performance he says he's the most proud of 
was his portrayal of Adolf Hitler and the last days of Adolf oh. Hitler. But I, okay. I like Alec Guinness so much that that's like the last guy I want to see him play. <laughs> have, have you have you seen that? No, I you know I'm never in the mood to watch a movie about Hitler. <laughs> Weird. <laughs> well, I'm always in a mood to to see uh, to be or not to be. Yeah, I, I watch a movie where they mock him, but I don't know, like a, a movie just about him. It's you got to be in the right mindset, I guess. Yeah. <laughs> when in 1973, Alec Guinness was in that mindset to play yeah. Hitler. <laughs> I'll totally watch it. Uh, you know, and that's pretty close to it's it's between that and Star Wars is only four years. And he was he was in a British TV series. He was in a TV movie of Caesar and Cleopatra. He played a small role in Murder by Death from 1976. And then. Oh, yeah. He is introduced to an entire like he basically. His. It's one of those things. Is his film career destroyed or made in 1977? <laughs> I mean, he finally had an action figure made of him, so that means he made it. <laughs> People can play the horse's mouth. But, you know, they can redress up the little Obi-Wan action figure and make a whole little game of it. <laughs> but what's weird is that after that, they're re- like he does Tinker Tailor Soldier Spy. He plays George Smiley in and multiple uh, British series, but there really isn't anything like his. How exciting his career was in the fifties and sixties, and then he has mm-hmm. this major hit with Star Wars in seventy seven, and there just really isn't much after that. Yeah, he was he was old by then. Maybe he was just kind of retired and just didn't have a lot to, to wanted to do. I mean, he I mean he did. Yeah. He was working into. You know, he was in Kafka in nineteen ninety one. Yeah, he was working up till ninety six. So that's he was still working for twenty years, and yeah. it's just to me that's really odd. That's a that is a weird anomaly. Like clearly, mm-hmm. people fell in love with him, and the opportunities must have been there for him to play. You know, like was he offered all the like all those sci-fi roles that Max von Sydow and other people <laughs> yeah. accepted, and he was just like, nope, nope, no, like like I, it has to be a choice to yeah. not say yes to. All mm-hmm. of the things that must have come his way after yeah. Star Wars, and to be like, okay, I'm going to do For Tinker sure. Tailor Soldier Spy. I'll act in a David Lean film. Yeah, really odd to me that his is yeah. such an odd career. Yeah, because you feel like he could have just milked that uh, the old wise guy thing. <laughs> There's plenty he of just movies wasn't interested, where, you know? yeah. yeah, okay, yeah. I respect that. I respect it, but I don't like it. Why don't we have a movie <laughs> where Alec Guinness is chasing, is like having a midlife crisis, chase, chasing after a young Carrie Fisher? 
Yeah. And other than the brandy, there was the connection of, I'm going to say the name wrong, Prokov, Prokoviev? Prokofiev. Prokofiev. Yes. Because the, the soundtrack for this movie is kind of adapted from one of his pieces, and Bo Derek talks about him in 10. Oh. So, there you go. Yeah, the, uh, the music in this uh, is, it really, it does a lot of the heavy lifting. The changes in tone that happen in this film and how they're... Uh, delivered through music really really works yeah so okay well that's the horse's mouth you can only find it as far as i can see at the criterion channel yeah Um, yeah and if you are one of those people who bought the criterion disc and kept it on your wall uh, on your shelf i'm sorry but if yours is like mine it's no longer playable these they've got it's got disc rot from being in maybe too hot or too hot a room (laughs) so my, I have the DVD, but it doesn't play. Uh, oh, so. man. Let's just take a moment. Let's hear about one of our fellow Paper House podcasts, and then we'll come back and tell you about next week's episode. One dream, one wish, one piece of mind. A podcast hosted by Nico White. About One Piece by Acherio Oda on Paper House Network. We'll see you every Monday. There's a so you host a podcast called The Director's Wall uh, with your co-host AJ Gonzalez, and you're you in the podcast you cover a filmmaker's full career. You started out with uh, M Night Shyamalan, and now you're into Francis Ford Coppola. And um, is there any is there any Coppola connection to Alec Guinness? I mean, I guess through George Lucas, like them being pals, Coppola and Lucas, Lucas casting Alec Guinness in Star Wars. Like, maybe they met each other on the set once or twice. Is there a uh, is there a Coppola film you think would have benefited from <laughs> Alec Guinness appearing? Like, could you see Alec Guinness in? I think he could have been in. Uh, in Apocalypse Now, like he could have been in the the pl- <laughs> he, I, he could have been on the plantation scenes. Maybe that would have been good. Oh yeah, I could, yeah, I could totally see him doing. Yeah, like that would have been a nice little like you know bridge in the river Kwai reference or something. I think I could totally see that. Or um or like wonder how good El Guinness's Italian accent is. He could have been a Godfather movie and played <laughs> gangster. Why not? <laughs> no, come on. <laughs> You know, Finian's Rainbow would have been better if it was Alec Guinness in, in oh, yeah. there. Oh yeah, yeah. That he would have he would have brought something to that movie. That if that movie was British, oh man, Gangbusters. Uh, <laughs> well, you also host a show, the Radio Eight Ball Show, where you answer questions by picking songs at random. I guess is there any connection to a uh, Alec Guinness through that? Uh, just be. I mean. Radio 8 Ball is is fueled by the force of art. (laughs) (laughs) Unrelated. This is funny. I got an email, like before you called me, I got an email telling me about the new Blu-ray anniversary of the Attic Expeditions, a movie you made some time ago. And that's funny because I wore, it's come, Severin's putting it out. And I've been recently working with Severin on a project and it was cool to see that you, 
I'm guessing you're on some extra features on that. That was funny that oh, I just yeah. got an email with your name on it. Yeah, no, and and I uh, I have a similar relationship to the Attic Expeditions as Alec Innes has to Star Wars. Uh, not really, <laughs> but uh, but when it initially came out, they didn't put my name on the artwork, and they buried my picture deep in it. And I was super excited when I got the, when they sent me the the information about it. Like, oh my god, I'm finally on my, the cover of my movie. I play the lead. I'm the main character. I'm in every scene. <laughs> but uh, but in earlier versions, I was buried under the names Seth Green and Jeffrey Combs and Ted Raimi. But no longer, Severin in their in their brilliance has decided to promote the actor who's in their film. It's pretty amazing. Uh, what are you, what's your, what's your deal with Severin? Oh, I just was, uh, asked to help with some of their, uh, future stuff. I can't, I'm not allowed, legally not allowed to talk about what it's for, but, uh, I've just been, yeah, writing some stuff for them and they're really, really, I've worked with them before. They've helped with some things and they're, they're a really great company. They're really nice people. Can you give us hints? Can I can leave no hints at all. <laughs> so they didn't have you write anything about the attic expeditions, I take it. <laughs> no. No, I did not. Not that's not the surprise, no. no. It, it, in due time it will all be revealed. Well, uh yes, if you're curious, the attic expeditions will be available on Blu-ray. Well, by the time this comes out, it's definitely gonna be available and you can go and Get yourself a copy, and you can decide for yourself if that's a good movie. It's certainly got some <laughs> really excellent actors in it. Seth Green, Jeffrey Combs, Wendy Roby, Ted Raimi, wow. Alice Cooper. Yeah. Ooh. Yeah. Uh, he plays a character who is convinced that he is shrinking and gets to deliver the <laughs> and delivers the the classic line, Measure me! Measure me! <laughs> Oh man, <laughs> it's, well, I, it's a goofy, it's I, a crazy, crazy film. Yeah, check it out, people. This this is exciting. Um, and well, I'm excited for next week's episode because it's a movie I never heard of till you told me about it. Johnny Cool. Oh, that's what we're doing next. Okay, well, yeah, uh, yeah, Johnny Cool. It's check it out. It is a gangster film from the early '60s. Starring, starring Henry Silva with cameos from Telly Savalas and Sammy Davis Jr. and Mort Saul and wow. Elizabeth Montgomery and Jim Backus. It's simultaneously <laughs> very violent and also very not violent. So like the it's a it's very emotionally violent. But cinematically, it's sort of TV violence shot in black and white feels very much like uh, I I feel like I'd love to have a conversation with Francis Ford Coppola about this film to see if he (laughs) what his awareness of it is. And uh, and yeah, so uh, I'm, I'm definitely looking forward to talking about that with you. Cool. And. If you would like to get in touch with us, ask us questions, make suggestions, you can reach us by writing an email to us at contact at theworldiswrongpodcast.com. You can also find us on um, find us on Instagram, where uh, Brian 
mostly maintains that. And uh, <laughs> that's at the World is Wrong Podcast. And of course, our website is www.theworldiswrongpodcast.com. You can also find our merchandise there. Get yourself a t shirt. Go into the new year celebrating how wrong the world is. Just get used to it, folks, <laughs> and make your friends understand that maybe the wrongness of the world is part of uh, part of its rightness. Who knows? Um, yeah. But uh, but whatever, however the world is, we're going to keep coming back and talking about films we love uh, for you. Um, Brian, you want to give any last salutations to the audience? Words of wisdom? No. no, just, you know, like if you see that big blank wall, like, go for it. Don't run away from it. Embrace it and just fill it up with your ideas. That's a great sentiment. That's wonderful. Okay, well, um, and when you do, if people give you crap about it, you just say, <laughs> hey, hey, don't you know, wherever you are, the world is wrong. And it's probably wrong about me. I mean you. About us. The world's <laughs> just wrong about us. Hickson's Examining a filmmaker's career, film by film. First up was M. Night Shyamalan, then Francis Ford Coppola. Who's next? Is there anything to this whole auteur theory? Find out on The Director's Wall. Subscribe via Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Stitcher, or your preferred listening platform.